Good afternoon, everyone. It's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to this webinar, Improving Language Access in Federal Programs, What is the State of Play? My name is Margie McHugh. I'm the director of the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. And um, we're just really excited to, um, to have the uh, uh, the guests that we do for this webinar and to have so many folks around the country joining us uh, to hear um, what we uh, what we hope will be a really, really interesting conversation. Before we get going, uh, I just wanted to make a note. Um, please email events at migrationpolicy.org if you have any difficulties accessing the webinar. Uh, and we would appreciate it if you ask a question, ask your questions throughout the webinar um, using the Q&A function uh, that, you'll, that you'll find within the system. You can also write to that same address, events at migrationpolicy.org if you have questions. It's a big help to get the questions uh, in advance. And we know already we have a lot. So trying to figure out how to pull them all together um, and, uh, and ask as many as possible of our, of our guests would be really helpful. Um, so just to welcome the speakers who are here with us today, I'll give a bit more of an introduction for each of them a little further on, uh, but just for now, we're joined by Amber Green, Special Assistant to the President for Racial and Economic Justice at the White House Domestic Policy Council. Uh, also, Melanie fontes Rainer, Director of the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and also uh, Ben Devonzo, Senior Policy Strategist at the National Immigration Law Center. Uh, so just in terms of the, the flow of show today, uh, I'll just say, um, for, oh, first of all, let me just say more about, um, about our work um, here at the center. Uh, just, uh, I know, a lot of uh, a lot of you who have joined us are familiar with our work, but one of the key things I just wanted to point out is that um, within our, our the focus that we've had for many years on early childhood education and care, uh, education and training systems, including elementary, secondary, and post-secondary education, uh, adult career, technical ed, and workforce development. Um, language access cuts across all of them, and so from uh, since our uh, founding within MPI back in 2007, language access has been a, a key focus for us. Uh, also seeing it as a, in the, I guess any of you who are involved in work that it, uh, is at sort of a um, cuts across issue areas, you understand very well that language access policies um, both have that sort of horizontal aspect to them uh, when you're in agencies that have a, um, a lot of different nodes and then also a um, uh, definitely a vertical axis about how do you go from the top um, to to make it happen at the front uh, um, at the the frontline point of service. Um, so um, so you'll hear more about that um, as as we move through this. I think that uh, set of challenges will be evident. Um, also, of course, we have a focus on refugees and humanitarian populations, and then very particular for today, uh, part of the reason our center was founded um, was to try and uh, promote conversations at the federal level to improve the governance of integration policies. Uh, and uh, and so we're delighted that um, we're having this conversation in the context of the White House Task Force on New Americans um, operating and being about to report on some of its efforts next week. So um, it's an exciting time to, uh, to be having this conversation. So just um, quickly, a few points of context um, for the, the conversation that we'll be having. 
next slide. Um, thank you to our uh, to our events uh, folks for for helping out with this. Um, very brief overview of language access. I feel looking at the um, uh, at the various uh, folks who have joined us for this conversation uh, online. Um, many of you are people who have been working on these issues for um, for a good number of years. Um, so we'll just very briefly talk about uh, the very quick, provide a very quick overview, and then uh, recent developments that are kind of um, really the trigger uh, for for today's conversation, followed by the panel discussion, and uh, and then also Q and A throughout, as we said before. Um, so just in terms of the the brief overview, um, I again. I think all of you know that uh, this question of language access for people who aren't sort of um, either inside delivering services um, uh, within government agencies um, or not inside uh, immigrant and refugee or um, Native American communities, this idea of uh, language access, it's not the most common phrase um, uh, to be using with the general public, but of course it um, for us refers to the ability of limited English proficient individuals to access services and information from government programs uh, to have there not be a, have language not be a barrier to being able to access those programs. Uh, it's a significant issue nationwide. There are over 25 million LEP individuals in the US and speakers of hundreds of other of languages other than English across um, all 50 states. And uh, and then um, these uh, the requirements for language access are embedded in our federal civil rights civil rights laws uh, and uh, an executive order, order that uh, codified them during uh, the Clinton administration, and then um, extensive policies and plans and the like that um, are associated uh, with those um, uh, sort of places where they are hooked in uh, to our federal laws. Um, so, um, so moving forward, uh, just in uh, in terms of the context today, um, you know, we thought we should just be honest up front. It's no news to um, to all of you that there are lots and lots of really uh, uh, significant um, uh, actions that have been taken, uh, both across all levels of government and many different agencies, uh, trying to ensure language access and uh, at the same time, um, you know, many years into uh, many years into these uh, things having been uh, having having really been um, planted firmly um, in the federal space, it's still an elusive goal to make sure that uh, that we really do have language access across federally funded programs. Uh, the pandemic seems to have really um, raised the issue up in the public sphere. Uh, lots of um, lots of uh, state and local agencies that I think had not really been aware, or maybe had thought that some of the uh, language access issues had been uh, had been taken care of, um, instead saw that we had major major breakdowns, including in schools, for example, and in healthcare uh, delivery systems, where I think those might have been the places that folks would have guessed were um, really doing better with it uh, compared to. Um, uh, compared to other um, other parts of government. Uh, but the exciting thing uh, for us and for, for many folks who have been working on these issues for a while is that at the federal level, the Biden administration has engaged in a good number of efforts to foster greater language access in uh, federal programs. And those weren't uh, sort of directly um, or individually initiated. A lot of what we'll talk about today is some of the executive orders that have 
promoted cross-agency uh, cross initiatives where language access is emerging and where um, uh, agencies are really taking on the issue um, in, a, uh, in a very pointed way. So with that, um, I'd like to um, just get back to introducing the panel um, a little more formally. Um, and I'm just introducing them in the order in which uh, we'll be asking questions. So uh, first, we're delighted to have Amber Green, who's a special assistant to the president for racial and economic justice on the Domestic Policy Council. Uh, she has an extensive history working on social justice issues, including advancing them through policies and practices of government agencies and in the private sector. Uh, for example, while serving as director of policy at the New York City Office of the Public Advocate, uh, Ms. Green led efforts to close the gender gap, uh, gender wage gap, equip police officers with body cameras and improve voting for people with disabilities. And she now leads implementation of the president's executive orders on racial equity and support for underserved communities. So you can readily imagine uh, why we're very happy to have her with us. Uh, and then uh, next, it's um, also a great pleasure to welcome Director Mel Melanie Fontes Rayner, um, who is the Director of the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. There, she leads the department's enforcement of federal civil rights and privacy laws and directs related policy and strategic initiatives. Previously, Director uh, Fontes Rayner served as counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra, providing strategy guidance to the secretary on issues pertaining to civil rights, patient privacy, reproductive health, and the Affordable Care Act, competition in healthcare equity, and the private insurance market. Before joining the Biden-Harris administration, she held senior positions in the California Department of Justice and at the Senate Health Committee. Um, uh, and I've hardly done um, justice to, and, and will not do justice to the incredible uh, careers and contributions of all three of the speakers here today. So um, I'd encourage you to find them on the web. It'll make you want to ask them twice as many questions probably as you're going to be able to ask today. Uh, but finally, we're also so pleased to be joined by Ben Devonzo, who's a senior health policy analyst at the National Immigration Law Center where he works on access to healthcare and healthy lives for low-income immigrant communities. His work involves advancing policies that enhance the health of immigrant families and, and uh, seeking to block those that bring harm with a particular focus on federal legislation and executive action. He previously held positions with a number of leading national health policy organizations, including the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum and Families USA. All right, so um, with those introductions, um, uh, we are going to dive pretty quickly um, into, the, uh, into the questions that uh, we have for the panelists. We've asked all of them to um, uh, move kind of quickly through their answers because we have quite a few that, um, that we're trying to get to. Um, so Amber, um, one of the things, um, as I was uh, saying in the setup for this, we have three, um, uh, really significant executive orders that the that President Biden um, set forth uh, in the early days of his administration, and um, the first that you're um, that you're leading is related to racial equity uh, in federal programs. Um, there's also one uh, on immigrant integration that followed within a few weeks of of that first one. 
uh, on improving racial equity um, uh, in federal programming. And then also, of course, supporting AAPI and Native Hawaiian communities. Um, and that's been that the implementation of that executive order has had a lot of uh, a lot of agency participation as well. Um, so we figure you you have a pretty bird's eye view of um, of the ways in which language access um, is sort of involved in all of those. And also you have all these uh, plans that are coming to you from federal agencies. So we just love to hear um, whatever, uh, whatever you'd like to say that's sort of an overview of how language access is um, involved um, in, uh, in what you're seeing um, across federal programs, particularly of course, related to these um, executive orders. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Margie. And I appreciate MPI for hosting this event, um, Jake, and very pleased to be joined alongside Melanie and Ben. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I just wanted to just first, you know, again, thank you all for having this conversation, because as you mentioned, it's things that agencies, you know, have been called to do, um, you know, through these executive orders, but there's a ways that we can all learn from one another, and hopefully this conversation will lead uh, to more of that. So Margie, as you mentioned, on uh, day one of uh, his administration, President Biden signed executive order to make equity and racial justice the business of the entire federal government. So this had never been done before. Uh, every agency had to identify the often visible and sometimes invisible barriers that have excluded so many Americans, um, and then identify some strategies to address those barriers, from how we allocate resources to equity and how agencies implement their programs, civil rights protections, and that also includes improving language access. You've noted there are about 68 million people who speak a language other than English at home. That's nearly triple what it was since 1980. As you also mentioned, there are about 25 million people in the U.S. who also had limited English proficiency. That counts for about 9% of the U.S. population. When you think about that, it's critically important, especially in times of crisis and matters of public health, to ensure that our government can provide the timely services and information to communities that are most vulnerable, and that includes LEP communities. Um, and as a result of the executive orders, um, as you mentioned last year, more than 90 agencies released equity action plans. This year, we're gearing up for that process again. Um, and in those plans, they identified specific strategies um, that they should prioritize, from issuing uh, new anti-discrimination regulations to making it easier to apply for federal grants, to reorienting civil rights offices to be more proactive in pursuing enforcement actions. When you think about it, it's really a whole of government approach that informs all of our policymaking across each of our agencies. And we're keeping our foot on the gas. In February, the president signed his second executive order on racial equity and support for underserved communities, which deepens the administration's commitment to that issue. Um, it directs agencies to take a number of steps to further advance equity, from publishing annual equity plans, engaging regularly with underserved communities, um, establishing senior leadership teams. And one thing that we made sure to put in, and this is again based on feedback and just information that we received is that we really needed to think about how do we deepen our commitment to civil rights. So you'll notice um, in the executive order, we specifically direct agencies to improve language access services to ensure that all communities can engage with agencies, respective civil rights offices, including by implementing executive order 13166, which is improving access uh, to services for persons with limited English proficiency. Um, and then I just wanted to, if I have a moment, uh, to share a couple of agency highlights um, if I may. So a couple of things that um, I think are particularly notable for this group 
that in November 20, uh, 2022, the Attorney General issued a memo requesting that all federal agencies review their language access practices and policies to strengthen the federal government's engagement with LEP communities, and outlines the course of actions for federal agencies to improve and modernize their language access responsibilities under that EO, under EO uh, 13166. Uh, um, DOJ Civil Rights Guidance also released a new guide to support agency efforts to collect language data taken together with the new task force on a task force on new Americans that domestic policy runs. Um, this issue will be included in the task force action plan to be released later this year and the inclusion of this work in the agency equity plans, which I'm reviewing now. Um, and we're seeing more and more agencies developing new policies to improve language access in their materials and their outreach and their engagement. For example, <clears throat> HHS increased language access to vote.gov, which is now available in 16 languages. USDA's farm production and conservation team translated more than 730 products spanning 30 separate languages, created 200 new Spanish language web pages on farmers.gov. Like the list goes on and on, but there is more that we can do. Um, and so these are just some of the examples of what we are taking in terms of creating that action based on what's driving um, the executive orders and ensuring that agencies have the tools and the resources to meet the needs of so many people um, from the LEP community. Thank you. Great, thanks, Amber. And Melanie, that's sort of uh, ending up with um, some of these agency examples is a great pivot um, over to you. Um, uh, there's this interesting thing going on, of course, with the various um, executive orders, but then HHS has always uh, had a pretty big um, uh, portfolio, you know, uh, related to language access issues and particularly um, your office, the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, so we were delighted that um, that to see that HHS included language access as the first named area of work in its equi equity action plan for EO 13985. Um, and also that you've restarted the work of an agency-wide language access steering committee. Um, but just given this uh, fantastic um, reach and size of so many HHS programs and funding streams, um, I should probably give you a half hour to answer this question, uh, but could you tell us more about the key issues and strategies um, that that you um, and, and I guess, you know, the, um, the agency a bit more generally are focusing on to address language access? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, in health, it's important across every single part of the federal government, but if you don't know what a doctor is saying to you, you don't know what's happening to you, what kind of medications you're taking. Um, if you, someone's using a machine readable translation, if somebody's using a Google translate, there are real implications um, for what can happen to you and your health. Um, and at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, as noted, our breadth and scope of programs is, is, is a lot in the healthcare space. It's also in the human services space. And so, um, you know, we, um, as part of our equity response to the president's call to action on, on the executive order, we are working on our language access work. Um, it was dormant for a while under the previous administration. So we've relaunched a language access steering committee here. OCR heads that every single part of HHS, whether it's CMS, the CDC, FDA, NIH, um, you name it, is a part of that. Through that process, we are working with every single operating division in HHS to come up with a language access plan, update their existing plans, and come up with new plans. Um, we've brought in a language access coordinator at the department to help serve across in a cross-cutting fashion across HHS. Um, 
We're working um, with senior leadership to make sure we're implementing the language access component and giving technical assistance in that capacity. Um, my office specifically um, is both a policy and law enforcement and on the civil rights and for language access. Um, and in that space, I think folks are familiar that last year we issued a notice of proposed rulemaking or a proposed rule on section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Um, that is what I like to call the kitchen sink of civil rights at HHS. It's non-discrimination in health programs and activities. And specifically, we have um, revamped the language access provisions in that rule. That rule importantly also gets to insurance, which is a really important topic. Um, and we also do a lot of enforcement work in this space. And so um, I know we we have a lot of work and we can talk more about that. I think you have another question on enforcement, but um, you know, the department's Office of Minority Health, uh, which were created by the Affordable Care Act, some of them are working to put out grants on language access services. HRSA just put out language access service grants. Um, and, and my office is also really trying to talk about this in a way that it's just communication as an entry point. So it is both for persons that have limited English proficiency, but it's also for persons with disabilities that might um, not have access to effective communication. Um, and we know, right, in Medicaid and Medicare and a lot of these programs and services, um, there's a pretty big swath of the population that might be both have a disability and be limited English proficient. And so it's something we're working on in the policy space. It's something we're working on in the law enforcement space. And it's something that every single part of HHS is, is committed to working on. I'm sure if you heard Secretary Becerra talk in the last couple of years, you've heard him say, right, as a child, he had to interpret very complicated medical documents for his parents, very complicated insurance documents. It is 2023. Um, and this is still not a priority for the healthcare industry, and we're still not seeing it being um, done in the right way. And so it's it's really important that we across our department have a commitment to, to pushing this forward and, and advancing this for people. Great. Thank you. Um, a lot a lot tied up in, um, in everything you just said um, um, and terrific to hear. So Ben, um, Nilk has been working on these issues for a long time, as have you. Um, and uh, and you've been uh, particularly um, closely tracking things that are going on in this administration because of some of the opportunities. Um, do you want to just um, say a little bit about what you think the most important issues are um, that um, need to be addressed in terms of advancing language access in federal programs? Like, what's your what's your look uh, with um, you know with the time remaining for? Um, uh, you know, for this administration um, uh, and and beyond, um, I should say. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thanks for having me. You know, from the perspective of an advocate and talking with folks who, you know, I've done this for a paltry amount of time compared to those who have been doing this work for decades, this administration really has been one of the first to make language access a clear priority in a variety of ways. And that really presents an important opportunity, you know, between the work of the White House Initiative on AAPIs, the Task Force on New Americans, the work that Amber is leading under the Racial Equity Executive Orders, the updates to the language access plans required by DOJ, and then the agency-specific work like that, uh, like the likes of what HHS Office for Civil Rights is doing. There is just a lot going on in language access which means that there are a lot of opportunities. Um, and especially we are at a real pivoting point where we, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of plans and a lot of proposals and strategies. And we are at a real point where, particularly with the time we have remaining, I think we really wanna see real permanent changes that can make 
outlast you know this outlast us outlast not just this administration but really our lives towards making language access not something that you sort of have to push and plead for and keep reminding folks over and over and over you know it's been 60 years since uh the civil rights act of 1964 at least it will be next year and despite decades of it being against the law to not provide meaningful access to people with limited English proficiency, we just have such a complacency at every level of recipients of federal funding, and frankly, within the federal government too, around language access. And so we have real opportunities in about three areas, I like to kind of categorize them. One is the quantity and availability of language access. You know, can you get an interpreter? Uh, can you get materials translated? Is there funding for that? The second one is quality. You know, if you have an interpreter, it, are they respecting interpreter ethics? Or if you get translated materials, are they culturally appropriate or written at the right language level or translated appropriately? And third is the realization of language access civil rights. Do federally funded entities, and frankly, also people working for the federal government know their responsibilities in terms of providing language access? And do people with LEP know their language access rights? In fact, I'll highlight that Representative Young Kim, a Californian Republican, and Representative Grace Meng, a New York Democrat, together just introduced uh, HR 5762, the Healthcare Communications Access and Resources for Everyone Act, should establish a universal symbol that would help inform people with limited English proficiency about where and when they could access language access materials. So really that third area is how can we actually better realize and make everyone understand that it is a civil right to have language access despite the many barriers. And so we really have opportunities to address all of these areas. Great, um, thanks, Ben. Um, a lot to um, a lot to think about. There are good opportunities, um, as you're saying. Um, so, Amber, I wanted to go back to you and um, and uh, just have you talk a little bit, if you would, about the um, uh, the particular um, kind of benefit of being at the domestic policy council level and its ability to uh, to be advancing initiatives that go across federal agencies and programs. And um, we uh, have been very excited um, uh, from the very beginning with the 013985, um, along with the Task Force on New Americans and the um, uh, also the um, AAPI-focused um, uh, executive order, just thinking about how um, almost like layering the, you know, those initiatives and the work that agencies are doing around them on top of one another, um, that um, that there might be some unique opportunities there um, in terms of um, processes or plans, you know, that um, that could come out and uh, and have that cross-cutting impact. So, could you could you just say a little bit about um, do you see um, opportunities um, for expanded cross-agency coordination, um, and how could that be? kind of better further leveraged um, to advance language access um, across federal programs, knowing that everybody's still gonna do their work in their agency silo, but um, just what are some of the opportunities you might see from a, a cross-agency coordination perspective? Thank you. So I think um, one of, you know, the one key area of, of, of growth that I think, um, you know, with our interagency coordination, um, you know, with, the various um, with White House initiative on a and NHPI communities like 
that provides us with a great visibility in terms of what additional needs and where we're not serving communities. Um, so those are areas where um, we have an opportunity to really think about how do we learn from one another. You know, there are some agencies that are way ahead in this work, some that are getting there. Um, so in that space, it allows, you know, an opportunity for us to learn and uh, work with one another. But one um, area that I think is particularly helpful um, in terms of a basis to understand like where there is need is the understanding of data disaggregation, and especially for AA and NHPAC communities. So as you all are probably tracking, OMB is currently undertaking an independent process to revise race and ethnicity standards. And those haven't been updated since 1997. So this process will ensure that federal agencies accurately collect and use information on race and ethnicity of our diverse America. Um, this action is pretty vital to ensure our programs and policies are effective um, across the federal government to ensure that we provide appropriate resources to communities that need it most and in ways especially that are most accessible to them. So I think that'll be something that'll be particularly helpful as we think through how do we ensure that we have sort of a basis of where there is need and where there are varying languages, you know, um, based on geography and based on community. So that's an, an area of growth that I think is particularly helpful. Um, and it's also community informed. Um, those revisions should be complete by the end of September 2024, or by the excuse me, by, by summer 2024. Um, and then in terms of AA and NHPI communities, we've made sure that promoting greater language access um, was really critically important, especially in the administration's national strategy to advance equity, justice, and opportunity for AA and NHPI communities, and happy to share that as a follow-up. Um, but it's gonna take all of us to be able to think about how do we do things differently. Um, right now, we're focused on the implementation of our second executive order on equity uh, to ensure that agencies deliver for the American people, including LDP communities. Agencies you know, have their next round of equity action plans, um, commitments that they've made. They'll have you know, milestones that have been achieved um, and ways that they can think about how they can improve those efforts. Um, and I will say that, you know, the agency plans are heavily rooted in being community informed and community driven. So agencies work with communities to identify those barriers to their programs, um, to understand what actions they should undertake. And that's why you'll see in uh, more of the plans, a greater focus on uh, language access in, in a lot of areas. Um, as we talked a little bit earlier, we do have the task force on new Americans. Um, the DPC has regularly convened interagency and also engaged stakeholders on language access as well. The task force is preparing uh, an action plan that will include a commitment to agency actions that make government work uh, better for LEP individuals. And DPC is working to clear those actions as well. Um, and as we work to implement those actions, I'll say that you know we are continuing to convene this task force. Um, language access continues to be a priority and will remain a priority in terms of implementation. Great, thanks, Amber. Um, uh, I'm just uh, seeing a lot of folks are writing in with questions. Thanks, everybody who's doing that. Um, and uh, one of them mentioned LEP.gov. So, of course, that is another uh, sort of resource that um, kind of uh, covers, uh, uh, you know, ac across some of the federal space. So LEP.gov for folks who aren't um, aware of that is also a, um, a great resource. Um, Melanie, speaking of the questions that are coming in, um, one of them is about uh, kind of what about the um, the role of federal agencies in making sure that the um, state and local um, uh, entities that money flows to from them um, are actually uh, are actually uh, enforcing um, federal 
uh, or, or yeah, enforcing federal rules related to um, to language access. And um, and so I think um, uh, you you've already spoken about kind of the responsibilities you have as an agency to look inward at the national level and make sure what you're doing there um, uh, is accessible for LEP individuals. But this issue of what about the folks who are receiving funds? Um, do you wanna, could you talk a little bit about um, what it looks like in such a big agency to be trying to do that? Sure thing. So um, we have jurisdiction over any, we call them covered entities, um, I mean, provider, um, 1557, I saw a question about health private insurance. We we do have jurisdiction with uh, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Once that rule gets finalized, we will be able to use that. Um, so insurance companies, um, states, local local governments, um, grantees, et cetera. Um, and in that work, we oftentimes work, you know, to drive voluntary compliance because most of the time, entities don't mean to break the law. Um, but also, as stated before, this is not being prioritized in the right way or organizations are so small that they're not putting the resources or they don't have the resources to commit. And, and, and I will say that's sort of a broad range. Um, we've had a couple of pretty key examples. So Maricopa County is the largest. So I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Maricopa County is the largest county in Arizona. Um, it is a very high rate of Spanish speaking population. It has a very large Latino community. Um, we got a complaint and investigated Maricopa County Superior Courts who were not translating justice documents, whether it was dependency documents, custody documents um, in Spanish. So again, I think I, I like to point that out because it, it is all of it. But also if that is still happening in a place like Arizona, it really thinks I really think it means we're not we're missing the mark overall and that we, we're still we're still seeing covered entities not doing enough. And so we, we worked with them. We came up with an agreement. They're going to do the training. They're starting to translate the documents. We're monitoring them for a couple of years. Um, the other place we've really seen this in is, is with states. So we did a compliance review of 19 states during the COVID-19 um, pandemic where um, ourselves with the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA, um, you know, were made aware that some states weren't providing meaningful access to COVID testing, vaccines and treatment programs, um, weren't translating certain things, websites weren't, um, or, or were translating and had really bad errors um, that were limiting access to these programs and services. Um, we worked with these nine states to train them. We work with these nine states to come up with resources and plans. Um, and we're continuing that state work, right? We know that the Medicaid unwind is a really important part of this work. Um, for those of you that don't know what that is, right? We um, Medicaid provides critical care to millions of Americans. It remains a top priority of this administration. And we're focused on making sure people have access to healthcare coverage. Um, and during the pandemic, processes that Medicaid um, enrollees go through to renew their coverage were on pause. Um, and now states are, are beginning regular Medicaid renewals um, for the first time in three years. And so that means millions of people will need to renew that coverage. Um, and the administration is working with states to make sure they're doing everything they can to keep Medicaid enrollees covered if they're eligible or reconnecting with the other coverage options. Um, and we, you know, we've seen errors happen. We've seen um, instances where people are losing, maybe losing coverage because of administrative errors. And so it's, you know, that's obviously unacceptable and, and we're working with states to do as much as possible. But in that vein, we have um, at the Office for Civil Rights tried to remind states that in this Medicaid unwind, like given the population, it's really important that you're translating things, that you're providing interpreters, that you're making sure your websites are accessible because again, 
there is a high rate of limited English proficiency within the Medicaid program itself. Um, I, I personally have been in states where I have been told by advocates that, um, you know, the call center doesn't do a translation in X language. This call center is not translating in Spanish. Um, this call center um, is giving misinformation to Spanish-speaking individuals. Um, so uh, th this is a really big effort across the administration. My office issued a letter to all states reminding them of their obligation under Title VI of the Federal Civil Rights Act, Section 1557 and Section 504, so both in the limited English proficiency and in disability, um, and, and, and identified best practices for states. Um, and so we have active investigations, we have active complaints that have been filed with our office. And so we'd like to remind folks that if, especially to this group, if you are running into um, your organization, you think, I think I saw a couple in the chat that I tried to write down, where you think that language access services should be, be being provided, you're being told they're not available. Um, you know, those are things my office can be helpful in and other federal partners are too. And so would encourage you to reach out to us. I can put our um, complaint page and LEP page in the chat, um, but it's really an important effort and one in which we're trying to make sure nobody falls out of the program because, you know, a state forgo, you know, forgo its, you know, obligation. Um, and I, I saw a couple questions in the chat about indigenous languages. We we have had settlements in HHS OCR with indigenous languages specifically. There's been some states where in the child welfare space, which is part of HHS's jurisdiction, um, children were removed or separated from families um, because there was a lack of um, translation and accommodations related to um, indigenous languages. And so we do have a couple of settlement decrees in that space that we're continuing to monitor with those states. Um, and it continues to be something that we're working on in the section 1557 proposed rule that we're hoping to finalize. Excellent, thank you. Um, so um, so Ben, I'm thinking that I might just um, uh, combine uh, two of the questions that I was um, planning to ask you. Um, uh, you know, a lot of us over the last few years, um, MPI, you guys, um, others have been sending in uh, recommendations to the various task force processes um, of different things that um, uh, that we are um, seeing or hoping um, hoping to have happen. So I'm just wondering um, specifically, is there anything more that you'd want to say about the um, the task force activities that you think they can, um, you know, kind of wind up in and what people should be looking for or um, hoping for? Um, and and I guess I'd put those more, you know, a little bit in a, um, a you know, a kind of higher level, like a, you know, process um, level. But then there's also tools or other things um, that, um, you know, that uh, you might think are, are missing or that you've been um, advocating for, you know, just different source of resources um, that the administration um, uh, could or the federal government more broadly um, could be devoting to the issue. So that would really make a big difference. So um, I guess, yeah. So anything you want to say about the particular processes underway, but then also um, about what could, what do you think could make the most difference, I guess, in terms of, um, of uh, advancing language access in federal programs? Yeah, there's two big opportunities here. One are some really clear, practical ways that the federal government can improve its processes, even without additional funding from Congress. And boy, do we need that. I know I'll say it because they can't, but 
Uh, you know, if you look at the budget justification for the HHS OCR for FY24, it makes a very compelling case for how underfunded uh, at least Melanie's office is, and that's true across the board for every agency OCR. In general, though, there's some steps that can be taken, but in more broadly, right, when I've talked to hospitals, when I've talked to local governments, I hear, well, the federal government doesn't do it, so why should we? And I think there's a real opportunity for leadership here by the federal government to set a really strong standard. I'll say, you know, picking up from what was being said around Medicaid unwinding, I've heard all those things and more. Uh, we did a little bit of research called Every Medicaid Agency Hotline just to see how you get an interpreter. And there are several um, that you know you have to navigate an English language menu, or you do get press one for Spanish and or press one for English two for Spanish, but then nothing, right? For the twenty million plus people who speak other or languages, uh, and the ten million of them that are LEP, right? You can't get to an interpreter, let alone you know how long the wait time is, or are they a good quality? But the federal government, right? Why did have to Medicare? Uh, Medicare only has press one for English, two for Spanish. Uh, it doesn't have information on other languages. And so there's a real opportunity here for the federal government to do some things like having permanently funded language access coordinators in every agency, actually, which is something that New York State has done. And I hope the federal government moves towards by setting that precedent so that every entity that fund, is federally funded has a clear language access coordinator or having clear processes and contracting procurement processes for setting expectations for what the standards of a contract should be with a language access provider so that everyone understands what the expectations are for quality and timing and turnaround or for having uh, clear responsibilities, right? Having a language access plan is really important, but having a clear process for how that language access plan is complied with, how the training is done for staff, right? Some of these really detailed on the ground things where we get tripped up because all you have to do is have that one person, whether they're working for the federal government or they're working for a direct service organization that's funded by federally funded, uh, funding and they're supposed to be asking for a person's preferred language, but either they just you're like, oh, you know, it sounds like you can get by using English, so I'm not going to ask you if you need an interpreter, or I don't feel comfortable asking that question, so they don't do it. And then you end up with a problem like in New Mexico, where there's a hospital being sued because a Navajo speaker wasn't provided with an interpreter. And it's just this very exciting opportunity then with the task force for new Americans and these other initiatives where if we can see some really concrete recommendations that get implemented right that's the important part right we can have as many recommendations as we want but we need implementation then we can see not only really important changes in the federal government but also a real leadership opportunity for you know the millions of localities millions of federally funded entities that can then follow suit and say, well, this is the best practice that the federal government is doing, so we should probably do it too. And oh, by the way, if we don't do it, uh, the agency for civil rights that's responsible for us is going to crack down and get on our case. Um, so I'm pretty excited about uh, what we're going to see over the next year and a half. Great. 
Um, so I'll just say um, we've got about 15 minutes left, and um, so we're going to move to Q&A shortly. But my job is so much easier doing this on um, on Zoom because all of the other all of the panelists can see the questions. Well, not all of them, so I think. But um, but it's um, uh, so I'm just going to say um, first of all, folks who are who are uh, with us. Um, please um, keep sending in your questions. Super helpful for us to all be able to see them. And um, I think I'm just going to um, open it up in a few minutes for um, each of the panelists to be um, uh, to be addressing some of the ones they see that they particularly want to um, uh, uh, get a whack at. Um, but for now, Amber, I wanted to um, to go back to you. And um, you know, we talked about the opportunities with the um, uh, uh, with the various uh, executive orders and um, the role of the DPC and sort of getting all of this information um, from agencies and, you know, looking at plans for what they might do. Um, there's, it's, it's all over in the questions about how practical and like tactile it is to try and create these services and really pin them into systems and how they work and sustain them and things like that. So I'm just curious in terms of um, uh, uh, you know, is there given the given sort of the that unique role of the um, domestic policy council? Um, are there particular um, either uh, kind of resources or structures, um, you know, that uh, or um, just kind of concrete steps or tools that um, you're thinking the administration can take? Um, that would support, um, uh, better support all agencies in taking on the issue. Okay, thank you, Margie. And I also want to just acknowledge some of the recommendations that that uh, Ben shared, because I think those are pretty uh, pretty helpful. I will take that back to the team. Um, I, too, am a former New Yorker, um, and so we were very like fortunate to have you know, systems in place and, and a very robust uh, language access uh, you know, mechanism in part by a lot of the work that uh, Margie informed that she was working on previously uh, back in New York. So, you know, you take for granted where you have, you know, an opportunity where there's a real focus and effort in that space. Um, and so we want to see that for everyone. We want all communities to be able to communicate, to feel seen, to feel heard, um, and to have the, the language and services that not only are, um, you know, provide uh, translation services, but also are culturally competent. I think one of the things that we have focused on as an administration is ensuring that um, our administration reflects the diversity of America. I think that's very important um, in terms of ensuring um, outreach and education to, uh, for communities. We place a big emphasis on burden reduction and paperwork simplification to ensure that everyone can utilize government forms and services. So I think that's a big area of improvement that we've tried to do um, in order to make it easier for people across the board to access government services. Um, I think a couple of the things that I'll share in, in terms of some practical um, examples in that space and a, a couple of examples, um, you know, just encouraging agencies, you know, to appoint language access coordinators. We know there are several agencies that have those, um, you know, and making it simpler and easier to procure government services for language access and also translation services are particularly uh, pressing right now. And then just figuring out, you know, working with communities to figure out where there are gaps. I think that is particularly helpful. And those are some things that we've done through our equity action planning process with agencies. It's really thinking about how we can better serve um, communities to hear from them directly about what's not being met, if there's specific barriers, if there are forms that need to be simplified, if there are processes 
that need uh, those things. So those are the types of things that we will continue to um, encourage everyone to share. Those that are on this call, I'm sure that um, others have also shared ideas, but I think um, those are the things that would be particularly helpful. And then also, as I mentioned previously, ensuring that government agencies also share best practices and learning with one another so that they're not reinventing the wheel when it comes to securing services, um, you know, figuring out what languages um, are needed um, and, you know, making those that information more accessible. Great, thanks. Um, Melanie, I um, anything else you want to say about sort of like the, you know, the year ahead that you haven't said um, in terms of HHS, feel free. But I just wondered, looking at the questions, um, do you, could you comment a little bit about uh, just the issue of folks coming up against agencies just saying they don't have the money to do it? Um, and also um, the particular question that was there about uh, what kind of uh, guidance exists for states that have English only laws? Like if you're, you know, for a lot of the folks who are trying to advocate for uh, better implementation at the state and local level, um, I do think that, you know, the first issue, especially about funding is one that um, comes up really regularly. Uh, but swing at anything else you see in the chat. <laughs> yes. I, I was trying, I am, I am, um not a good multitasker. So I was trying to both read the chat and listen at the same time. So I um I I may need you to repeat the question. Um so the I saw in the chat there was a question about how we investigate and, and do compliance with states. Um typically we either get a complaint that is filed sometimes by an individual, sometimes by an organization like um NILK, um, for example, um, the complaint will come to us and then we investigate. We also have the ability to just do a compliance review based off of what we're seeing in the news or like I was in a state visiting and was told some really pretty egregious things about a state program and now we're looking into it. So um, typically it's a, it's a, it's, we ask for a lot of information to understand what their practices are, what the information is related to the complaint, how the individual or complainant is being treated um, to suss out if we think there's a violation. Um, once we've done that, that can sometimes take, you know, a couple of weeks, it sometimes can take longer than that. Um, once we do that, we determine um, if we think the covered entity has actually broken the law or the covered entity is willing to take corrective steps to, to correct the conduct. Um, and then um, if they don't, we can always issue a notice of violation, which then allows us to refer a case to the Department of Justice or, or go through the defunding process, which is, is more limitedly used um, and can be longer. Um, oftentimes you don't see the work that we do where we drive voluntary compliance because um, we don't do prep. I mean, we do sometimes when it stays because we want to make sure we're padding, um, propping up that work so that others can see here's what was done wrong and here's how to do this better. But we don't always do the sort of one-off hospital, one-off provider, one-off dentist, et cetera. Um, uh, you asked me about... Um, Oh, funding. So funding. I put a couple of links in the chat. Um, there, are, I mean, I, I am not allowed to tell you that there's not enough funding. Um, that I'm just not allowed to. But you know, the, my, my office has been flat funded for over two decades. Um, so it, it is what it is. Um, but there are other agencies at the department, like HRSA, which works with federally qualified health centers and and some of the um, healthcare training workforce programs, um, like the Office of Minority. Um, health within the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health. They have put out funding opportunities um, in this space. Um, the HRSA one is both in the disability space and limited English proficiency. Um, and the Office of Minority Health is really working with community-based organizations. Um, 
So we've also tried to work with our grant making um, organization within HHS to make sure we're thinking about the size of the organization, who the organization is, so that we're driving equity as we think about these principles and how we're, we're issuing grants and we think about the work that they're doing in this space. Um, and it's also a priority area, right? Like we, we will have, as Amber said, every single federal agency will have a plan. And that means that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services, HRSA, the FDA, the NIH, the CDC, like they will all have updated, very public plans that um, I fully expect for the public to, to hold us accountable and to make sure that we're doing as promised. Um, and that if we, we have a program, a grant, or we have a covered entity that isn't following the plan or isn't following the law and the agency isn't doing so, that they're they're able to reach out to my office or another office to file a complaint. Um, and so it is very much a very real possibility. And I will just say like, my office, we have people who call, like I have people who call my regional teams monthly on a reg, on the regular, because if they don't call the HHS Office for Civil Rights, they are not getting certain documents translated. They're not getting certain inter, um, certain um, translation services. Um, it's not always that way, but I do have um, folks who very regularly call both for um, effective communication and limited English proficiency. In an industry that makes up a ton of money, um, especially the health insurance industry, it is not enough. And everywhere I go, I try to remind folks this is not an afterthought. This is something that should be built into your entire book of business and every single part that you're doing from the training to the you know, advertising you're doing to how you're actually having your providers connect with with their patients and community, and um, you know, I it, people don't mean to break the law, but like people are breaking the law, and there's more work to do here, and we're we're working on it. But I also think there's a lot more this industry can do. Great, and I I just feel like I should say too that um, you know there's offices for civil rights and other federal agencies, and um, uh, that everything that you're saying. Um, folks should be thinking about regional offices and the like in their areas and reporting um, a lot of the problems with language access that they see to other agencies as well. Um, so, um, so I um, I thought Amber and um, and Ben just looking uh, looking in the chat. Um, I didn't know if either of you would want to take on the questions that are being asked about language access um, uh, in the immigration space. Um, you know, just because there's um, a lot of concerns that, uh, for example, interpreters um, not being provided in asylum interviews or challenges related to naturalization test redesign. Um, if either of you feel uh, comfortable taking on that, um, great. And then um, also uh, one of the questions um, has been, if you're, if you're looking at this from the state and local perspective, and, um, you know, first of all, if you're in a place with English only laws, you know, are there resources out there that you'd uh, recommend for folks to be thinking of in terms of um, how to how to argue um, the issue in those states? And also, uh, you know, the one there's funding, there's funding for these um, issues within the uh, federal agencies and offices like um, OCR at HHS. But then also uh, what we hear very often um, at, the, at the local level, that there's just not money in the particular funding stream, you know, for folks to be able to um, 
uh, provide the level of language, language, any language access or the level that folks are asking for. So if either of you, please just have at it with, um, with any of those uh, questions. Amber, why don't you go first? So I will take that uh, question back to um, folks on our team um, regarding some of the immigration questions that have come up. Um, I do know that, you know, for instance, for DHS launched a, a new online complaint portal that with prompts in about 10 languages um, uh, to note. Um, so I know that there are a number of things, but let me bring, let me bring that back to our team. Um, and that way, I can hear a little bit more and we're happy to provide, you know, any written response that we can or to share back, um, you know, what's there. And, and if there are things that we would, you know, you would like us to know as well, please do share that as well. Great. I added together a few things. I mean, I think it is, frankly, speaking as an immigration advocate, I can't say anything but beyond it is an injustice that asylum seekers are expected to provide their own interpreters. Uh, interviews and this is what I sort of mean when I say the federal government needs to be a leader. Uh, court spaces are one of the most important places for, you know, this is if it leads to someone's ability to live in their home or be free or not free, having an interpreter is, you know, speaking English, right? This is racial discrimination. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if European speaking immigrants who are more likely to speak English have easier access to asylum processes because they speak English than non-European immigrants. Uh, that is, you know, I would say call it out as racist and systemic racism. Yet the federal government is now, you know, didn't during the pandemic, but is now requiring asylum seekers to provide their own interpreters. And this is what I mean when we talk about, you know, putting it a little more broadly around a an issue of a, an attitude of complacency, you know, at every level. This is not the federal government. We need to see private actors really stepping up here. We need to see hospitals, philanthropies, schools, businesses really need a change of attitude. We're gonna have growing numbers of people with LEP and growing linguistic diversity, hundreds of languages and greater numbers of speakers of indigenous languages and small, smaller dialects throughout the US. And we're gonna end up in a situation where we just are stuck and cannot serve them because we've been so complacent. And so, I'm going to, you know, end on a positive note and go back to what I was saying, where we have a real opportunity, you know, it's going to be hard. These problems are really, really hard, right? We haven't even gotten to interpreter certification and quality. We haven't even gotten to the scary reality of AI. Melanie mentioned it a little bit with machine translation, but the worrying trend, or we may see some real laziness. Uh, we haven't seen really gotten into the issues with reimbursement for doctors and other entities. You know, we need to deal with all of this, but we have an opportunity to start now. There's a much greater awareness of language access these days. There's a much greater interest in addressing racial equity these days. And we need to work together between the federal government, between local and state governments, between private entities and advocates and come together and start creating this expectation that it is not okay for someone not to be denied access to information or access to a program because they don't speak English as their primary language. And by resetting and setting some real progress and making some incremental wins, we can really start the ball rolling. And I, I'm pretty excited about the many different pathways and many opportunities that we're looking at. Sounds great. Um, so um, so I, we're unfortunately at time. I just want to um, say that I know we didn't get to all of the questions. Um, and I want to um, say specifically that Jacob Setter, who is um, 
uh, who's been appearing um, with his picture here, um, has been monitoring the chat the whole time. He's our lead policy analyst um, doing a fantastic job working on language access issues. Um, so we'll make sure to uh, divide up the questions, make sure we get back to everyone um, and um, also maybe uh, lean on our panelists who have every, already been so generous with their time uh, to, um, to get a few more answers. But just um, many, many thanks to all of you who have joined us and, um, and especially uh, to um, Director Fontes Rayner, um, to Amber um, and to Ben uh, for all the work that you're doing um, and also for taking the time here um, that you can see on the screen here how you can get in touch with us. Um, and also uh, a few of the, uh, the resources that we have that might be of interest to all of you. So again, thanks to all the speakers, thanks to all of our participants, and um, look forward to crossing paths with all of you as uh, some of this work continues to unfold with the administration. Take care.